0: Hi, everyone. It's Jen. This is a special coverage episode covering developments in the Rebecca Gould murder case, covered in Season 1 of Break the Case. As listeners know, William Miller, who is Casey McCullough's first cousin, was arrested in November 2020 for Rebecca's murder. After months of delays, William, who is often referred to as Billy, finally made an appearance in court for a suppression hearing. During this hearing, his defense team argued that his confessions should be thrown out. Wednesday, August 24th was the first day of his suppression hearing in Melbourne, Arkansas. This episode will cover those three days of the hearing. My investigative partner, George Gerard, was in the courtroom. George was one of the very first journalists in 2004 to cover Rebecca's case beginning the week she was reported missing. He also helped search for Rebecca and actually was present on scene shortly after her body was discovered. For George and many people in attendance at the hearing, It was a surreal and overwhelming experience to finally be in court with her alleged killer nearly 18 years after the murder. During this episode, we'll hear George's initial thoughts about the suppression hearing, along with two of our local friends, Karen Looney and Diana Cox, who have also been following Rebecca's case for years and appeared in episode 8 of season 1. A few notes to listeners about this episode. The actual trial for Billy has not begun, but is scheduled to do so on October 31st. The suppression hearing involved motions on behalf of the defense arguing that Billy's confession should be ruled inadmissible. As a result, the video of his entire confession was shown to the court. Much of the information that came out during this suppression hearing is new to us. We wanted to share this information as soon as possible, but know that we do not have all the answers and we are simply trying to interpret and add context to the information revealed during the suppression hearing. The full trial will certainly include many more details that will provide greater clarity and insight into what actually happened to Rebecca. Because recording equipment was not allowed inside the court, I spoke on the phone with George, Karen, and Diana each day after court let out. We'll start this episode with my conversation with George on the evening of Thursday, August 25th, where we discussed the first two days of the hearing as he was driving home from court. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, George.
1: Hey, I'm drinking from a fire hydrant right now. So what happened? We sat. I'm telling you, Dr. Gould was a good two feet away from William Miller. I mean, literally in my line of view, I could see his head right beside William's head. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was surreal. It's got to be, yeah. I sat there and stared at the back of his head for a minute, and I'm like, are you the SOB I've been looking for for all these years?
0: Exactly. How bizarre. Is it you? Yeah. If nothing else, he's the one at the other end of the computer.
1: Yes. I thought about that, too, because when he walked in, he looked at me, because I was sitting right there, right behind Dr. Gould. And he looked at me and I just kind of smiled at him and he just kind of looked away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. And hey, you know me. You should have done the little finger wave like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I got you.
1: <laughs> ah, gotcha. Oh, and he did mention my books, too. He did. Yeah, he's like, oh, these people are just writing all this stuff in these books and all these podcasts. And of course, Diane looked at me and she goes, there's only one person who wrote about it, in a book. And I go, yeah, that was me. He's noticeably thinner. He's lost a lot of weight.
0: Well, I doubt the prison food there in Izzard County is that great. Plus, he yeah. can't drink. He used to be a big drinker. Yeah. So.
1: He got this huge tattoo of, like, it looked like a demon on his back. At one point, the polygraph guy got him to pull his shirt up, but oh,
0: there was man.
1: this demon-looking thing on his back, and I was like, uh.
0: Like the the lifelong monkey that he's carrying around on his back? Yeah. So what happened? Okay.
1: So, basically, I'll just construct this, like, from a chronological timeline. We'll start with that. Okay. So, William Miller was in Arkansas because he was helping his mom and brother move. Okay. They were going to move before all this happened. Now, he told police back in 2004 that he arrived in town that Sunday afternoon, said he saw Casey somewhere in town, and decided to go by his house. When he pulled up at the house, Rebecca actually saw the car— Mm -hmm. And so I guess Casey and William both told the police this back then. So, yeah,
0: they said that he,
1: he sat outside for about 15 minutes talking to Casey. Still a little unclear if it was Linda and William or if it was just William. But either way, he was definitely there and that he was probably in his mom's car. So he claims that the next morning, Monday morning, he and Linda took Jeremy to school And then they went to Ash Flat to get a U-Haul truck. They couldn't get the U-Haul truck because they didn't have one available. So then they decided they were going to have to come back the next day. He says they went back to um, his grandpa's house, which would be Claude Sr. They were out in the field cutting hay. And then they went to the school and picked up Jeremy. And they told the principal that he wasn't coming back. And this was Monday afternoon.
0: Wait, okay. When did the murder happen in all of that? Well,
1: the murder would have happened Monday morning, according to prosecutors. prosecutor. So here's what's interesting. They say they took Jeremy out of school that Monday, which is really odd. Yeah. And then they go to Branson, Missouri that night. Wow. Yeah, they drove three hours up to Branson, Missouri. So what they're doing is they're establishing an alibi. Yeah. So they go all the way to Branson. They go out and eat, but they don't even stay in Branson. They come back that night. Okay? Yeah, they're establishing an alibi. Oh for sure. I'll tell you what's interesting. So when Claude and Vicky split up, Vicky took all the furniture out of the trailer and a lot of the furniture was replaced by Linda. What? Yeah. And so he was trying to tell Mike McNeil that one of the reasons that his DNA might be in the trailer, and the first thing he mentioned wasn't a couch, a table, The first thing he mentioned was a mattress. Wow. Yeah. And as soon as he said it, I was like, alarm bells. No one else in the whole courtroom even picked up on it. And he said it four times. There's a whole bunch of furniture that she took. And he said it during these hours long talk. And then all of a sudden, he's like, well, you know, it could be like a mattress. You know what I'm just sitting
0: there going? Come on, bro. Yeah, but Vicky and Claude broke up like three years prior, didn't they?
1: Um, I don't know. He just said that the furniture in the house had once belonged to his mom.
0: Okay. So, so, so this information that you got today came out of the videos of his confessions?
1: And, well, of his interviews.
0: Like, interviews. they haven't gotten
1: to the, they haven't got to the confession yet, but here's the thing. Okay. When Mike McNeil went in there, he said on the stand today, this morning, I had no physical or DNA evidence that tied him to the crime at all.
0: Oh, my gosh. What did he have?
1: He had nothing. Now, here's the thing. Williams' defense attorneys were wanting him to elaborate on his process of eliminating the McCullough's because he said on the stand that he went after the McCullough's hard whenever he started. And we know that's true. Well, the defense attorney was like, well, I want to know how you eliminated them so quickly. I want to know the process. And then the prosecuting attorney said, now, judge, we're not trying the whole trial here today. You know, this is more on procedural stuff. And the judge, you know, agreed with the prosecutor. But you could see that they were wanting to get at, okay, what happened with the McCullough's that led you to William? Because he just kept saying, well, I, I knew he was at the house within the proximity of the murder meeting the night before. He said, so he was sixth on my list of people I wanted to really talk to. And so he said, by process of elimination, that's why I went after
0: him. That's it? That's it?
1: Yeah. So what I'm thinking is the way he worded it on the stand, he said, up until I interviewed him, I had no physical or DNA or any type of evidence that tied him to the crime. What I think may be possible is after William confessed, he told them where that suitcase could be located. They found it, and then they found some physical evidence to tie him to the
0: crime. So Mike confirmed that they found the suitcase.
1: No, he didn't. Oh. I'm assuming this part.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. This is a theory. Okay.
1: They were very careful about the way they said on the stand. He goes, up until I interviewed him that day, I had no physical or DNA evidence tying him to the crime. He didn't say there was none, period. He just said up till that day there. What they're doing is they're playing a little game. And what it is, if the confession gets thrown out, let's say, then any treasure that comes because of the confession, like, for instance, finding the suitcase. Yes. That can also be ruled inadmissible, too. Correct. So that's what they're trying to do. The problem is, I told Dr. Gould and his assistant and Diane and Karen this, I said, I could just look at his defense attorney's face whenever he was sitting there. Like when he's being Mirandized, he's asked over and over again, do you understand that you are waiving your right, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, and he signs it. There's a ton of little details in there, but I think the biggest takeaway for me so far, we've only gotten up to the point of where he's taken the polygraph, but he hasn't been told the results or anything like that, and it was really long and laborious. You know how long those things take. Oh, be. they're
0: terrible, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's awful. So he doesn't even know the results yet, but I looked at the timestamp. We're getting around 6.30-ish, their time when this was going on. okay. So he had been in there for a good five to six hours at that point.
0: And this is on that same Saturday.
1: Yes. Why were they even
0: showing the polygraph? It's not admissible.
1: You know, that's actually a good question. Well, I think part of it is they want to show the process that led up to the confession. Okay. Well, no, I'll tell you why the prosecutor had to show it, because that's how he was Mirandized. Mm -hmm. Once Miranda's been issued, even if it's in the context of a polygraph, as long as that officer's in the room and your Miranda rights by U.S. constitutional standards have been met. Okay. So, yeah, they have to show that, because that, that's how he got mirandized. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that's why the prosecutor's showing it.
0: Was there anything okay. else that you got information on about what he did that Monday before they went to Branson?
1: What he said was he was with his mom, and they went back to the grandpa's house, Claude's dad's house. Mm-hmm. And Claude's dad was out cutting hay, and then at some point they decided to go pick up Jeremy from school and then they decided to go to Branson.
0: So when does the murder happen? I mean, that's a lot of stuff he's doing. And he just throws a random murder in there, too, along with his cup of coffee and hay cutting?
1: Yeah. Well, this is a story according to him. And he hasn't, yeah. he hasn't told the, the confession story yet. Okay. Because I think there's elements of it that are true. And I, I told the guys this, too. I said, guys... Don't get too wrapped up in the story because we already know he's lying. Yeah. He li- Mike McNeil said, okay, so did you go by Casey's house the night before the murder? He said, no, I did not. He said, well, that contradicts what you said back you know, in 2004. He goes, well, I don't remember going there. So he was already telling a lie. Mike McNeil knew that William, a.k.a. Billy, was yeah. back in the country on, on October 21st. He called Linda and said, hey, I need to set up an interview with you and Jeremy he said, I know that Billy lives in the Philippines. It'll be really hard to get a hold of him. So it may not be possible. I would like to talk to you guys since we haven't talked to you guys in 16 years. And she agreed and said, oh, yeah, Billy, it'd be hard to get a hold of. I don't even know when it'd be possible to get a hold of him. When she damn well knew that he was staying in her f- house that day.
0: Yeah, so she's lying, too.
1: So she's lying, yes. And then when McNeil contacted Billy's ex-wife, Billy actually called him from the Philippines.
0: What? When?
1: Called McNeil, yeah. This is before he met with him. I actually called him and wanted to talk to him, but McNeilson and I basically blew him off because I wanted him to feel like this wasn't any big deal, that yeah. I wasn't really wanting to talk to him. So I blew him off, talked to him for 30 seconds.
0: What was the time frame of him supposedly calling Mike from the Philippines? Because I thought he wasn't over there all that year that Mike was on the case.
1: Um, well, I don't know that he was in the Philippines. He might have just said he oh, was. Oh, he just
0: said he was. Gotcha.
1: So... Anyway, yeah, Mike McNeil, he is a very impressive witness on the witness stand.
0: I know, Dr. Gould said he was great.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I tell Doc. I've watched hundreds of detectives testify in court, and he would be among the top. He answered every question effortlessly, and even when he forgot something, they played a little bit more of the interview, and they said, can I tell you something else? And then he went right back into the redirect. I mean, he sounded like a prosecutor on the witness stand. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm telling you right now, I have not seen one thing that would be grounds for suppressing his confession.
0: Oh, thank goodness. So did you get to the part of the videos yet where he actually confesses?
1: No, but Mike McNeil did tell how he got him to do it. Okay. He he showed him a picture of a bloody washcloth and said, why is your DNA on this washcloth? (laughs) (laughs) And he told him that he found Rebecca's DNA in his
0: truck so he truck did that he use that ruse I was telling Dr. Gould like I had heard that I mean you and I have spoken about that several times but uh-huh. we've never put that out because that's something law enforcement should only know but yeah. now it's going to be out there but like yeah well I heard from two sources that McNeil showed him a picture of his truck at the time and said they found Rebecca's DNA in it Yep. and in the beginning we believed that and then I started thinking I bet that's more of a ruse yeah. Well, it was
1: a ruse, but it was a ruse to William.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, but that's how he got into confess. we haven't gotten into all the details of that. But again, they asked me, Neil on the stand, when you went to Oregon, did you think you were going to interview the primary suspect in this case? And he said, no, he goes, I didn't know. He said, all I knew is that the other guys I interviewed them and their stories, but they yeah. just weren't fitting. And I didn't know why. So I just went to the next guy on the list to see if there's any potential for him to fit.
0: Wow. I wonder why they didn't fit.
1: <laughs> um, I think that enough of Casey's alibi. I think he probably was provably at work Monday morning. And I think that's what we're down to now. Because how are his two first cousins and aunt, how the f*** are they in Branson, Missouri? yeah. And he doesn't come home the night that that woman was murdered in that house. Yeah. Come on. Nobody buying that for a second.
0: No. And all four of them are out doing the same thing. Just staying away and being caught on camera.
1: Right. Establishing alibis. Yeah. I was worried about the Miranda, but they were clear. I mean, it was clear as day. Mike McNeil from the very beginning, he goes, I want to make this absolutely clear. You're here of your own will. No one's forcing you to be here. And you can walk out that door anytime. You don't have to stay here. He said, you don't have to answer any questions that I ask that you don't want to answer. And you understand all that. And he goes, absolutely, I understand all of it.
0: I I mean, how dumb are you? You you got away with this for that many years. Why would you sit down with this officer without a lawyer?
1: (laughs) No, I told Dr. Gould and Maria, we were standing outside during recess. And I said, I was watching his defense attorney during that part of it. And his defense attorneys are going, you wouldn't even be in jail right now if you just would have walked out right from the beginning said, ah, I'm not going to do this.
0: Yeah. I think he couldn't help himself. He wanted to find out what they knew.
1: Well, I'll tell you the mistake he made. He made the mistake of agreeing to do the polygraph. Yeah. And McNeil did use deception to get him to do it. But listen, there are some real types of deception when it comes to detectives doing stuff to trick people. All he did was he talked to the polygraph guy the night before when he came to his hotel in Portland and he said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, hey, if you ever come back to Arkansas, you'd be willing to take a polygraph if you came back to Arkansas. He's obviously going to say yes because he never intends to come back because he never has. Correct. So he said, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, hold on a second. I'm going to call you and act like you're a part of the Cottage Grove Police Department and just say, hey, do we have any availability to possibly get a polygraph? done today if it's possible because then he would he would be boxed in because he said he would do it if he was in Arkansas well why can't yeah. he do it if there's someone available right there and the guy that was going to do it was just he was just waiting in the other room oh sure no in the,
0: no, in the a great police tactic. department mm-hmm.
1: yeah and and mm. so he got it <laughs> you know now I will say this when he was asked about getting a DNA sample he definitely didn't want to do that it was clear okay yeah there was no if-ands or buts like he He was spinning When he said something about getting a DNA swab from him, you could almost see he was about to say, I need to talk to an attorney. Yeah. And he just didn't. Well, i say this. If you think the guy did it, then I'd say that the prosecution's on pretty solid ground right
0: now. Mm -hmm. It sounds more positive than I expected.
1: Yeah. I mean, you just always got to wait for these things to play out because like I said, we don't know what information he gave them that led to evidence. And that's the other point I was going to make. OK, let's say they didn't find his fingerprints, DNA, nothing on the suitcase, in the suitcase, anywhere near the suitcase. That doesn't mean it's not a powerful piece of evidence, because if he knew where it was and they can prove that it was hers and that her blood or something was in there. Yeah. Or some that he knew where it was at. That's yeah. almost as good as having DNA or fingerprints. It's pretty close. So, it's, yeah. It's... Yeah. Yeah. How did he know it was there? The only argument he can make is. Is that he somehow communicated with the killer and the killer somehow told him that.
0: Yeah. And I'm just going to make this clear because I know people are listening. We don't know that they recovered the suitcase. This is just a theory of how they got more evidence that linked William to it.
1: Right.
0: I also want to clarify for people listening is that it is not illegal in our country for police officers to lie to a suspect and say they have DNA when they do not. It is perfectly within the legal limits of interviewing and interrogation. You might not agree with it, (laughs) but it is legal.
1: You know, it works. To get somebody to say something truthfully when they're lying, sometimes you have to lie to them. He lied about things that are just simply easy questions not to lie about. He had hunted some and he wanted to get a permit to kill a bear and he wanted to get rid of it. So then he was asked, have you ever harmed a living creature? And he said, no, (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm sorry. But when you shoot something dead, that's harming it. okay? And then he was asked over and over again. Have you ever harmed anyone in your own family? And he said, no.
0: Wow. And apparently there was at least a charge against him for home invasion with bodily injury or something.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what else he had in 2002 in Aransas Port. He was a suspect in a sexual assault case, aggravated sexual assault case.
0: And nothing ever became of it, huh? Nothing. Wow. All right. Well, thanks for chatting with me. Safe travels tomorrow. Back. Okay. I'll do that. Immediately after talking to George, I called our local contacts, Karen Looney and Diane Cox, who have been following Rebecca's case since her murder. They attended the suppression hearing alongside George, and I wanted to get their insight into the day's proceedings.
2: Hello. Hey. (laughs) Hey, Jennifer.
0: How you guys doing?
2: We're we're tired. We're tired of setting. You
0: gotta be exhausted.
2: Oh, girl, we are. I'm telling you what, the polygraph, Mm. that was all freaking evening, Jennifer.
0: Oh, (laughs) is that what kept you guys so long?
2: Yes. Yes. That's all we heard for the last nearly hour. They showed it all, Jennifer. (laughs) Oh, William. every time they'd ask him a question about the polygraph and stuff, he would say now, uh, I take blood pressure medicine, anxiety medicine, so will that affect it? Will that affect the polygraph?
0: <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've seen people say stuff like that.
2: Well, he did, multiple times. Uh-huh. I'm going to let Fisk go over her notes, okay. Jennifer. great. Okay, uh, let me see. William admitted he was at the trailer on Sunday in the interview room video. William said he moved his mom to Melbourne. He drove a black Chevy truck there a couple of times before to his Uncle Bobby's, which is Casey's dad, Claude. And he had been to Casey's trailer two or three times only prior to 2004. Said he got there on Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Said Jeremy was home, so they went straight to Linda's house. And William asked Casey to help him move his mom to Texas, but Casey said, no, he was just too busy, couldn't do it. He and Linda took Jeremy to school and then went straight to Ash Flat to rent a U-Haul trailer, but they didn't have any at the time. So they came on back and picked up Jeremy from school, and Linda told the school then that he won't be back.
0: Yeah, well, something else transpired that day.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, something did. That's yeah, for did sure. That. Yeah. yeah, and then they decided to go to Branson that afternoon. They didn't want to go to Branson. Yeah, so they went to Branson. <laughs> the thing he said about that Branson trip, he said we took some back roads to Branson. Yeah. And I thought uh, we didn't know what that. I meant. didn't. Well, that just didn't <laughs> make sense. Took some back roads to Branson, <laughs> but then they went back to Ash Flat and actually picked up the. U haul and trailer and loaded it up, and he said he saw then saw a bunch of vehicles at Casey's trailer. Then Mm -hmm. and Linda called Claude, or he said Grandpa. He said he thought there was a party going on at Casey's. Yeah, with the
0: cops or what? Are you kidding me? He
2: he didn't say yeah. He didn't (laughs) didn't specify that, but he said a bunch of cars. He thought he's having a party. Yeah. Okay, and then the next thing I wrote was he never came back to Arkansas after 2004. They asked William what his theory was what happened. Yeah. He thinks it was the neighbor who killed Rebecca because the neighbors heard screams the night before. Now, I don't know the night before what, what day that would be. Mm-hmm. But two or three times he mentioned the neighbors that yes, he did. really thought it was the neighbors. And their last name, Jennifer, was Tig. Oh, I know.
0: So this is the very first message William ever sent me. He sent me a, a newspaper article that said a neighbor heard a scream on Sunday night. And he goes, have you looked into this? And I think their last name is Teague or what, something like that. That was our first exchange.
2: Okay. That's what it was. Uh, yep. That's what William said today. I see. <laughs> In 2010, he said the doctor told him he was bipolar. So he started taking medicines. For that, for two or three years, and it was making him groggy, so he quit taking them. He was asked if he killed her, and uh, he said, how could I kill her when I wasn't anywhere around? How could I even uh, kill her? I wasn't there. You know, something like yeah. that.
0: Typical but answer, answering with a he, question. It,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: so what and, did... Uh... What did they reveal about what was said back in the very beginning in 04? Because George said that back then William was interviewed and he did say he'd been by the trailer or something. And apparently Casey said the same thing.
2: The only thing that I remember hearing is just that he had been there two or three times prior to Oh, okay. Supposedly his mom and him went to the trailer to get the weed eaters.
0: Yeah, that Saturday.
2: But Saturday, but it's not. Only thing they said mentioned Sunday. Yeah. That he didn't get there till Sunday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it was actually Jeremy and the mom who were there on Saturday.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they were the ones getting the weed eater thing. That's
0: my understanding now. Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense now.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just can't hardly wait for the trial, Jennifer. Oh, I
0: know. I'll be there.
2: (laughs) It's all going to come out, isn't it?
0: It's going to have to.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's about all we know. Yep.
0: Well, I sure appreciate the update. I can't thank you guys enough for taking the time to go.
2: You know we're too nosy not to go. Dr. Gould really laughed, and we introduced ourselves, and he turned around and said, you just don't know how much I appreciate you all.
0: Yeah, he's such a kind man.
2: He is. He is.
0: Okay. I'll try to catch up with you guys tomorrow, if that's okay, then. The same as we did tonight. Okay.
2: That'll be fine.
0: Perfect. Well, get some good rest. Drive safe tomorrow. Thank you so, so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. On day three of the pretrial, I got a surprise call from George during a morning break from court.
1: The suppression motion on the confession was denied.
0: Awesome. All confessions will be allowed at trial.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the confession will be allowed at trial, and it's damning. His attorney's good. And I told Dr. Will, I said, William Miller just continues to do... He did everything that your attorney would advise you not to do.
0: That's crazy to me. He had 16 years to think about what to do.
1: Well, you know, it's like the one thing that was a problem was that when he was Mirandized you know, there's five points to the Miranda. Well, when point four was being given about if you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. The officer forgot to advise him of that. So he didn't advise him of it. There was no doubt about it, but there's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. And the letter of the law is you have to read that out. The spirit of the law is, was he aware of his rights? Mm -hmm. It was, I'll tell you what saved the officer, too, is that he held up the Miranda form a few minutes later and said, so have you read this? And and he didn't say it was a Miranda form. He goes, oh, you mean my Miranda rights, my right to remain silent and all that stuff? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I read it. I signed it.
0: (laughs) Okay. well, there it is. So, yep, it's on him.
1: When you come and you see the confession, I, I can tell you all day long every word that he said but when you sit there and watch it for yourself yeah. you realize that the guy is telling the truth about what he did all the accompanying facts may not be true but the essence of what he's saying is absolutely true
0: mm-hmm.
1: oh i'll tell you something else that came out today too they may have been on to william a little earlier than we thought i didn't want to read too much into it but the texas rangers actually got pictures of the truck on september 10th oh wow So that was a full week before our folks went in there. So it may have just been a tidal wave of things coming together.
0: How interesting. Yeah. So they really did track down his actual former truck.
1: Absolutely. Got pictures of the truck.
0: I wonder what it looks like, huh?
1: I didn't get close enough to make out a real accurate picture. And this is the thing. Casey's name keeps getting brought up over and over and over again. And I forgot this. When McNeil is questioning, he says, listen... I know you killed her or you're helping Casey cover it up. So tell me who did it. (laughs) So there you go. Well, I'm going to go in here and eat with them. I've got a long drive ahead of me.
0: Okay. Yeah, go eat.
1: All right. Bye. Bye.
2: Hey, Jennifer. How you doing? I'm doing good.
0: <laughs> Are you I'm glad, glad this week is over?
2: over. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am.
0: <laughs> okay, that's funny. We said it at the same time.
2: <laughs> we did. <laughs> oh, my
0: goodness. oh, my gosh. Well, I won't keep you that long, but I just wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on yesterday and today. And
2: He was just telling how he killed her and this bam, bam, bam. It was the spur of the moment.
0: And no motive.
2: And no motive. He just come out of the woods from hunting, saw her car there. And he went and knocked on the door and asked to use the phone. She was wearing, two or three times, he said, shorts and T-shirt. Mm-hmm. said she went back and laid down, and he was just walking back and forth in the living room trying to decide what to do. He said, and he, he just gets thoughts like that, and bam, 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 the light came on, and he decided to kill her. So he went in there and hit her twice, you know, and then he went into the closet and got a tie out of the closet and choked her. Wow. Well, do you think that tie could break that hyoid bone? Or yes. What do you call it? Oh, it could. So
0: okay. the hyoid bone breaks more commonly during manual strangulation when someone uses their hands mm-hmm. around someone's neck. Um, it's less common in ligature strangulation, which is what he's saying he did, or in like a hanging. It's mm-hmm. not nearly as common, but it's not impossible. I guess it just depends on the angle, where she was, where he was, the amount of force. But it can. It can break it.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. Man, when
0: I heard about that necktie, I was just like, oh, my God, George. I'm so thankful that we never revealed about the broken hyoid bone. It gave me such a sinking feeling in my stomach yesterday. But I'm like, Mm -hmm. well... I know that he was involved because before his arrest, nobody knew that her hyoid bone was broken and that she'd been strangled.
2: Okay. So that is the
0: value of holding back certain pieces of information. But I mean, they held back way too much.
2: Yeah. And he said he wrapped her up in blankets and tried to clean up a little bit. Uh, He said, I turned the suitcase over. That's why the clothes were still folded on the bed and my DNA might be on the clothes. And he said he uh, put some of the bloody bedding in the suitcase, then wrapped her up in a blanket and chunked her over the fence, he said. And then he put her in the back of the truck and went through town and five miles down the road, he dumped her body. Then he went to the car wash and he uh, got rid of the piano leg at the car wash trash. They asked him, Where's the suitcase? He mm-hmm. said, It's an ark. So I'll take you back there and I'll show you where it's at. Well, where is it? You know, a couple of miles down the road, he said. Wow. And he said, If somebody hadn't picked it up thinking it was trash, you know, so mm-hmm. he said he never went back to Casey's house. Mm-hmm. He went over to uh, his grandpa's. He said, I acted normal. I'm a good liar. Two or three times he just said, In broad daylight, right by the sheriff's department. Went by there with her in the back of the truck.
0: I think that's preposterous, and I don't believe it, but we'll see. I don't
2: either. I don't either. They asked if he raped her. said, no. Did you steal her weed? No. (laughs) Why did you kill her? He said, a light went off in my head. I went in, and bam, bam, bam. I freaked out and just killed her. Hit her twice, he said. I know it. I know it. He wanted to see his mama. This is before they arrested him. McNeil took her out there, and a lady brought Linda out there, and they hugged, and he whispered something to her and wanted to give his wallet and phone to her out there, and then they left. And, of course, yesterday we saw the video where he talked to Jeremy out there, and Mm -hmm. Jeremy kept saying, What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? He kept repeating that, and uh, William said, I did something bad, and then I couldn't hear a lot. Uh, People were moving around and talking. Mm Mm-hmm and uh let's see
0: he's trying to cover that his mom didn't know anything about it i guess
2: yes her or jeremy or he said casey and uh randy uh, didn't know anything about it. his mom and jeremy didn't know anything about it just kept stressing it though he just told his mom or jeremy that he had to pay for what he did i took her life and i'm a good liar the gas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they asked him if he ever wanted to apologize. This was yesterday. And he said, Well, I thought once about going to Dr. Gould's office and telling him I did it, but I was a chicken. Yeah, he is. He, yeah. He apologized to Acosta for lying to him. You know? Wow. I know.
0: Yeah, he said,
2: I'm sorry. That bothers him. him.
0: He lied to a police officer, and that bothers him, but the rest of this doesn't.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought. You're lying. You feel bad about it. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you a thing. I'm not going to keep anything from you. He said, I've held this secret so tight I told no one. He said, I thought about taking my life. I'm so good at lying. And that's when they asked him if he thought about apologizing. Mm -hmm. He told Acosta, he said, I'm a monster. I'd love for you to just take me out and put me out of my misery. I need to go to Arkansas to face my demons. I guess
0: we'll see. Well, I really appreciate you guys talking oh, yeah. with me every day and keeping me up to date. And Well,
2: I hope you've understood some of the things I've said. Oh, all of it,
0: yeah. <laughs> no, you've, you've done great at taking notes.
2: Well, okay, bye-bye. All right, bye.
0: At the end of Friday's proceedings, I talked to George again to hear more about the confession video that was played in court. Yesterday, you saw the bulk of William's confession videos, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I guess one of the biggest items that came out is that he claimed to have taken a necktie and strangled her.
1: One thing you and I talked a lot about, Jennifer, was we had a suspicion that she had either been smothered or strangled at Mm -hmm. the time of her murder because of some injuries that uh, you had noticed in her autopsy report. First of all, I thought it was very interesting that for the longest time, the state medical examiner, uh, the prosecutor, the, the police, everybody thought that she she had been struck in the head with a single blow. Mm-hmm. And you had always maintained it was two blows. And I thought it was very, very interesting that William Miller, in his confession, said that he hit her twice with the piano leg yeah. in the head. So it confirmed what you had been saying. And it also, in a way, corroborated something else that we suspected about the the strangulation because he said that after the second blow, the piano leg basically fell apart and that he had to go to the closet to retrieve a necktie to tie around her neck as she was moaning, more than likely unconscious. Mm -hmm. And then he ended her life through strangulation. And so it's interesting when you have theories, especially about what physically happened to her, And those theories were pretty spot on. I mean, I don't even know if we could say pretty. They were just spot on.
0: We had spotted the broken hyoid bone in the autopsy report. And what's still crazy to me is in the autopsy, the medical examiner, a coroner who did her autopsy, felt the hyoid bone just fell apart, I think was almost the exact wording, during decomposition. And at first I just went with that but then talking to other experts and doing my own research and you too we were like no that doesn't happen after only six days of a body being out there and that's when we were like man that was probably broken during the attack but that was also a detail we knew had never been released And And something only the killer could know. And that's why I'm like, yeah, William had to have done this because when he confessed on November 7th, nobody out there knew that her hyoid bone had been broken.
1: He knew a couple of a number of things that only the killer would know. He early on in his confession told Detective McNeil that he could take him to the spot where the suitcase was located. Mm -hmm. And that's Rebecca's suitcase that was missing. And it had a number of items in it from the crime. My suspicion is is they probably retrieved that suitcase. Yeah. And they probably found some evidence in the suitcase that ties them to the crime. And going back to the necktie, we had never heard that. We had never heard about a necktie being used or having been collected. He said he thought he threw it in the dryer. It's either in the dryer or it was in the suitcase that was with the other evidence. So if they retrieved that suitcase, they retrieved that tie he knew things about the crime that only the killer could know specifically mm-hmm. about the woman being strangled and the bone in her neck being broken. So there's only two possibilities at this point now. He's either directly involved, meaning he was the primary person involved in the killing or he was assisting, or the person who killed her told him. Mm-hmm. And um, that's still a slight possibility, but I will say this. In court, his attorneys are not arguing that his confession was false. Their argument was, is that it was obtained illegally. He's not recanting his confession. He's not saying that any part of it's not true. They're saying that the process by which it it was obtained was false Mm -hmm. and cannot be used against him. Of course, the judge today ruled that it can be used against him, that he was properly Mirandized to the legal standard. Mm -hmm. When he really starts the confession, the first part of it was he saw them in town, is what he said. And then he, quote unquote, followed them back to the trailer. I don't know if he immediately went to the trailer, but I think he meant it in the sense of he, not that he was directly following them behind their car, Mm -hmm. but he just followed them to where they went. And so then he's there for approximately 15 minutes. Casey said in his statement to police, he said Rebecca was the one that alerted him that a car had pulled up in the driveway. And so Casey walks outside He talks to William for approximately 15 minutes. We don't know if Rebecca walked outside or could be viewed like through a window or something like that. But it was clear to William that Casey had someone in the house with him, a female. And he made that clear in his statement. Now, the one thing about their original statements to police, they're pretty spot on. They both said about 15 minutes. There's still some confusion about what they talked about, Mm -hmm. because at one point, William says he asked – Casey, if he could help him move some furniture, because obviously William was in town to help his mother and brother move back to Texas. And so he was needing help moving some of that stuff. And he claims that he asked Casey to help them when he moved his mother and brother up there about approximately five months before I have a suspicion that he was asking him that night. He came over there to say, Hey, can you help me move in the next day or two? And because that would make more sense because other than that, there was no plausible reason given back in 2004 by either Casey or him as to why he showed up. And he said repeatedly, and I think we need to use the term confessions. He confessed yeah. fully at least twice. Mm-hmm. And he confessed actually more than that. He, he confessed to his brother. He confessed to his mother. I mean, he, and he did it on camera. Now, he didn't give specific details to either one of them, but he did say, I'm sorry, I did something horrible, which is an admission of guilt. Yeah. So he confessed, by my count, probably five or six times in about a two and a half hour period.
0: To me, that says this was a burden weighing on him. And the floodgates yeah, was just opened, you know, once the first small confession comes out, it was probably like, yeah, let me get this off my chest.
1: It was really strange because... He would say there was a monster inside him, and he said that he had a demon that he needed to confront back in Arkansas. He kept saying these things over and over again. But then the juxtaposition of that was he said 26 times, I played everyone the fool. Going back to Casey, he said he wasn't very close to the McCullough's because they were younger than him. He was pretty close to the older half-brother, Randy. And he said they were close. Mm -hmm. But he said he wasn't particularly close to Casey in fact, when he was asked, do you feel bad that you've put Casey through this? He never said yes.
0: Wow. He
1: said, I separate myself from this. He said, I don't think about it. And then when he was asked again when he had a chance to affirm that he felt bad, he didn't answer the question. So not answering the question is an answer. Yeah. So it's it's really odd to me that in one sense he's like that, but in another sense He takes her body out of the McCullough house. Mm -hmm. He cleans the mess up to a degree inside the house. He drives her body. He said he drove right through town, basically a low-riding, smaller truck with her body wrapped up in a sheet in the back with her suitcase and some more than likely bloody items from the crime scene in the suitcase. It's hard to fathom that he drove all the way through Melbourne because from where Casey's trailer sits to go that route, you literally have to drive past almost every single business in that town the way yeah. it's laid out. yeah. For such a small town, it's kind of elongated along its main thoroughfare. And at the end of that thoroughfare is the road that directly leads to the sheriff's department, which there could have been mm-hmm. you know, police officers coming and going, people who work for the sheriff's department. I mean, and these are trained professionals. If they see a what looks like a bloody sheet flapping right. in the wind in the back right. of the truck, I'm, these guys are going to go do something about it. It's laughable to me that he did he went that route just because there was another route where there was virtually nothing, yeah. and he was in a truck. A truck that he had concealed in a field, so it was mm-hmm. obviously heavy-duty enough to go down a, a rocky gravel road. And especially, it doesn't matter if it was necessarily equipped to go that route. Because it had to be done. He had to get rid of her body.
0: Yeah,
1: I want to say that some of my bad theories, you know, years ago, when, you know, we had very little information about the case that I developed and I would talk about. One of them was, did he possibly roll, just roll the body down the embankment? And that's what he kind of seemed to indicate he did. And that just doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe he did. Maybe the original hypothesis on what he did, maybe it was correct. I would originally hypothesized that she was laying down, facing away from the killer when he struck. Even now, I can't believe that, especially the work you did really convinced me that she had to be standing up. And there's also another mitigating factor when it comes to that. The mitigating factor is this. He said there was no sexual component to this, that he just went into a psychotic rage and just decided he wanted the, the feeling of killing someone, so he just killed her. I don't believe that for a second. No, me either. In his two primary confessions... He said that she was wearing shorts when she was found. It was reported by witnesses at the scene and reported by the police that she was found in her underwear.
0: Well, and the autopsy.
1: And the autopsy. So we have irrefutable evidence that she was in her underwear. So what happened to her shorts?
0: Right. That's one of my big questions. Because Karen said he made that declaration at least three times of what she was wearing. That he made a point. Like, she was in shorts. Okay. What happened to him?
1: Right. Now, Mike McNeil knows the story, you know, up, up one side and down the other. Um, Damien Acosta, the Oregon State uh, polygraph examiner, who was able to pull much more information during the second confession out of him, a more, little more fine details. I would like to have known, like, what did he do with the dogs? You know, there were two yeah. dogs in the house. Right. I would have liked to have known, where did he get the bleach? Because he said he used bleach. We assume he got it from Casey's house, but we don't know that for a fact. Number three, if he was out hunting and I think at one point he indicated that he did have a firearm with him, like in his truck or he had access to firearms. If he wanted to kill her, why didn't he just go back, grab the firearm and kill her like that? I kind of wish once they had the confession down pat, I wish they would have pushed him a little more because he was he was openly talking. I mean. He only went to the holding cell when they said, hey, it's time to go. But he was still chatty.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm going to tell you this right now. Those three guys were the right guys for this job. Their demeanor, their manner. I'm watching them, especially at first with Mike McNeil. When he's in there with him, the way that he's baby-stepping him to the the culminating moment. Mm -hmm. And the culminating moment is he wants him to take a polygraph exam. Yep. Yep. Now, the the polygraph exam, he fails. Then he comes into the room, and he said that he wanted to break William's confidence. He said this on the stand. I want to break his confidence because he's gotten away with this for so long. We've got to bring him down a notch, and then I've got to hit him with something that he can't handle. And the two things he hits him with are a picture of a bloody rag that was found underneath the bed, and then he hits him with pictures of his truck that he owned at the time. And he tells him that the killer's DNA is on that bloody rag. And he had just asked for William's DNA right before the polygraph exam. So William knows the DNA profile exists. And then he says some biological fluid from Rebecca was found near the pedals on his former truck. So he says to him, you can't explain why her biological fluids are in your truck. Tell me why. And he started to try to tell a story that he was out hunting that Monday and that he had parked in the place where he actually parked and that he saw a blonde headed guy and some other guy doing something on the back porch. He went over there to investigate and he must've maybe stepped in her blood then. What? And yeah. And then Mike says um, something to the effect of that's ludicrous. And then he tells him earlier in the interview, William had told Mike, that um, some of the furniture that was in the the McCullough trailer had actually belonged to his mom. And so that it was very plausible that his DNA, because he stayed with his mom a lot, could be on some of that, that furniture. But he never said anything specific. The only item of furniture that he specifically mentioned, or at least the first thing, and I think he said it more than once, was a mattress. Yeah. And Mike looked at him. He said, that is absolutely impossible. He said, there is no way your DNA is going to be on a bare mattress for months or years after it's been put in that house. Mm-hmm. And other people have been sleeping on that bed every single night. He said, that is not true. And he said, so let me get this straight. I've got this rag with some DNA on it. I've got her DNA in your truck. And you are telling me that, uh, that this is all some type of a coincidence. And at that point, William goes, I need to talk to my mother. Damn. And then he goes out to the Sally Port, he hugs his mother, and again, even Judge Weaver said most officers would not have allowed this to happen. At this point, they have prob- probable cause to hold him, so mm-hmm. they can hold him, so he can't go anywhere, he can't do anything. He could ask for an attorney, and then the attorney would obviously advise him to si- be silent, and they probably would have lost him at that moment. Yeah. But McNeil does something a lot of officers would not have done. He allows him to go outside to hug his mother. And then he brings them back in, and then he starts to tell them the story. And he immediately, within seconds, incriminates himself. He says, I killed her. I did it. Wow. Yeah.
0: Was that actually a bloody rag that was found at that crime scene? Yes. Wow. Under the bed. Huh. Yeah. Not in the washer. (laughs) So confusing.
1: Yeah. Now, I will say this. Some of those details, because... Obviously, Mike wasn't a part of the original investigation. True. You're relying on notes and memories from other people. In this case, especially a cold case this old, I'm trying to caution people don't take everything as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Understand that it's in the realm of fact. That rag could have been found maybe in like a hallway or yeah. it could have been found near the back deck. But, you know, he said he cleaned up in 15 minutes. So you would expect there to be things that he forgot to do or left in the wrong spot. And also, we know that he put the pillows under the bed, too, so maybe yeah. the rag just got caught up in the pillow and went under there. I don't understand why he, he thinks he's some kind of criminal mastermind. The thing that got him off the radar was the fact that he did not check any boxes of who would normally commit this crime. He did not know the victim virtually at all. He had no connection to her. Yeah. He had a very loose connection to his first cousin Casey says they've only probably met maybe 10 times in their entire lives. But I also think part of that has something to do with the fact that William said that he had never been back to Arkansas since 2004. Well, sure. Yeah. And he didn't even come back to Arkansas for the funeral of his grandfather. Exactly. who He was very close and loved very much. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you?
0: I mean, if we believe everything he said in his confession, this is like the most statistically improbable murder scenario I've possibly ever heard.
1: Like, this is, this is ludicrous. This couldn't even be a thing. And because he actually did a horrible job. He even admitted cleaning up was a problem. He said what he should have done, he should have just burned the trailer to the ground. <laughs> That's what he should have done, just set it he on said fire. He said that? All the evidence gets burned up. He said, I should have even just let my truck catch on fire, too, you know? Tell him I was out hunting and some fire started, and boom.
0: He is like taking yeah. words out of your mouth because that's exactly what you said.
1: Yes, I'm not kidding and I'm not trying to take credit for it. But when he was talking about driving through town and driving past the sheriff's department, I said you. that exact literal phrase yes. over and over again early on.
0: So many of his statements were just like, it's deja vu. I still want to know what happened Sunday night, where everybody was. Yeah,
1: agreed.
0: Because that's just a big question mark in my mind. We want to know the whole story. Obviously, William was involved, no doubt about it. But there's a lot more to this story, and it is clear he's lying about some details and clearly leaving out many gaps of time, probably because at a minimum crossed paths with other people in his family and does not want their names to come under scrutiny.
1: Well, there's three things that jumped out to me in that regard. Number one, he claims it was much earlier in the morning that this whole thing went down than what the traditional timeline is for Casey going to work around eight o'clock. He said that he went out hunting. This whole thing went down in the trailer and then he dumped her body, got rid of everything, washed his truck up, went back to his mom's house and they all got out of bed and he came out of his room and everybody thought he had just been asleep. That (laughs) right there makes no sense to me. His brother had to be in school.
0: What time did school start? It wasn't, I mean, but certainly by eight eight o'clock, his mom and brother have to be out of bed.
1: More than out of bed. They have to be gone. Yeah. So that part doesn't make any sense. The second part that doesn't make sense is that he doesn't really seem to care about Casey a lot. You know, he says, move my cousin. So why didn't he just leave the body there? I know. Because he took a tremendous risk in moving it.
0: So many risks.
1: Yes. And... I just don't understand why he he doesn't seem to care about him. So why did he care about him enough to move the body? Because he even said during his confession, well, if I'd left the body there, they would have thought Casey did it.
0: Actually, that would have made, made Casey look better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it would have.
0: But see, there's that so, reverse psychology that killers don't understand.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, you're right. It could have benefited Casey because mm-hmm. if he could verifiably be at work, yeah, It could be verified that she dropped him off. Then his game, set, match. He didn't do it.
0: he just goes home from work at 2 o'clock or whatever, he finds her body dead. He calls 911. They're there Monday afternoon within a few hours of the murder. He says, Maybe. she took me to work. Maybe stopped at the possum shot. They can go get the video from the possum shot because it's under 24 hours. They can question Jessica. Did you see her this morning? Yes, I did. Like, it would have been so much easier on him than yeah. what happened. Yeah, and it was...
1: The other bizarre thing that popped out to me was that he said it more than once. He said that the reason he moved the body was he's afraid that this could be tied to him if she was in there. What? And I was like, that is so weird because how? It's not your house. You don't live in Arkansas. You have a cousin. You barely have any communication with this girl you have no connection to. I mean, I, I don't understand why he thought that.
0: See, that's and leakage. It, that's why I still think he was hanging out there Sunday night. Yeah. He could have even slept over and Monday morning, Rebecca takes Casey to work. He says he's taking off to go hunting, but actually he knows she's gonna come back alone for several hours. Then the scenario goes down. Yes. If he never entered That that trailer, which is what him and Casey are claiming, there's no way they would have tied that to him. Nobody even knew he was in the state.
1: But it also shows something else too. If that's what truly happened, then they're lying about what happened Sunday night. Um, I'll tell you, it was a little, uh, I don't want to say shocking, but it did perk my ears up when he, when he said my name during his confession. Oh, I'm sure. It was strange. He talked about Dr. Gould quite a bit, like three or four times. He mentioned him. He mentioned Shirley, the mother, once. Uh, Interestingly enough, he never mentioned any of the sisters.
0: Hmm, weird.
1: Yeah, he never mentioned them. Um, He mentioned you not by name, but by action. He mentioned the Facebook page and specifically things that were going on there. Um, He mentioned Catherine Townsend. He referred to her by her last name, Townsend, and the Helen Gone podcast. I'll tell you one thing that was interesting, too, listening to the officers talk, listening to him confess over and over and over and over and over again. He continuously repeated podcasts out people talking on facebook uh books being written stories being written all this stuff and it, it was mentioned so many times that at a recess i was talking with dr Gould, and he goes oh he said this public pressure that we mounted yeah it had a definite impact on this case there's yeah. no question it was
0: stressing him out obviously
1: yes it was stressing him out it was causing him trouble
0: and if we were so far off on everything he wouldn't be stressed out. So right. So that's why I think we actually probably got pretty close on a lot of those things. He just doesn't want to admit it.
1: But yes, I agree. That's fine. No, I, I completely agree. I think we did land pretty close on a lot of things. For instance, can we prove that she was lying on the bed or standing up? Well, the experiments that you did specifically Tended to show that the blows were delivered to her standing upright and she was turning into the blow as it was coming. He says she was laying on the bed. Yeah. Okay, so we have your science versus his story. The scenario that he laid out is that she's laying on the ground and he hits her twice in the head on the ground. You specifically did experiments analyzing the angle of the blows comparing it to the wounds on her body. And you were able to come up with um, a plausible explanation that she was standing upright when she was struck.
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So you have his story versus your science. So what do we have to do? We have to go to mitigating factors. And the mitigating factor to me is this. What woman is going to let an unknown five foot five, 290 pound man, Come into a home where she's in a t-shirt and shorts. She has no idea who this person is. According to him, they've never met. She's just going to go in her room with the door open and lay down in bed with her head turned to where she can't even see this guy. No. And then he says, "Well, she never suffered. Not one bit. She never saw me coming."
0: Oh, she suffered? Is he kidding me?
1: Yeah. My suspicion is is that he came into the house he probably pretended to be on the phone for a second. Then he got off the phone. She's probably getting her laundry ready yeah. to go back home. He goes over. He starts hitting on her, maybe like touches her, does something. She's like, stop it. Leave me alone. Get out of here. And she instinctively retreats into another room to get away from him, hoping he'll leave. Yes. And then he becomes enraged. So he's just sitting there building up rage. And then he starts pacing like he says. He probably paces back and forth once or twice. She's just trying to ignore him. She's in the room. She's probably standing up, folding clothes, putting them in her suitcase, getting ready to leave. He either knows the piano leg comes off or he just accidentally knocks it off. I think it's possible that it happened that way because Danielle said it would do that. It would just fall for no reason. Yeah. So if you have a two hundred and ninety pound five foot five guy walking past it, that might create the pressure on the flooring to make it move it falls he picks it up he walks in there she turns right when he delivers a crushing blow to her head yep and then she spins around and then the second blow is delivered he said it shattered into pieces so that's when he goes and retrieves the tie out of the closet because again he's still a coward he doesn't actually want to touch her when he's killing her
0: yeah So
1: he wraps the tie around her neck, and then he strangles her to death like a coward would who is two and a half times her size. Yeah. So anyway, all right, we'll get on it.
0: Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for everything this week. Mm. No problem. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. We're all still processing everything that happened during these three days of the suppression hearing. The pre-trial hearing is scheduled to begin on September 26th and we will bring listeners another episode at that time. George and I will also be attending the trial and will record more detailed audio for the podcast. Thank you for listening to this special coverage episode of Break the Case and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be notified when new episodes are released. Join AMU's cold case team on our investigation into what really happened to Rebecca Gould. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchaltz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leachin Cranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, Breakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.